Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Hi. Hello. Ween is here. I am Ween. So this will come out post-Halloween, but it is our Halloween. Yeah, today's Halloween. And that's what it is. I just love that so much. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> is it a TikTok meme? I think it was a Vine. Damn. I think it was like Stone Age. Yeah, this is how you know you're old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, we are out of breath from doing our post-recording hype-up session. You mean, you mean pre-recording? <laughs> oh yeah, pre-recording. That's correct. We just uh, put on a little Doja thank, Cat. Thank you, Doja. Get into it, yeah. Yeah, and I guess we don't really have anything to talk about. Nah. So we are going to just get into it, yeah. Yeah, we hope you had a good Halloween. Yeah. Just throw that in there. We're going to have a good one, I think. We'll see. We'll see. Probably. We'll let you it know. It could be fun. Yeah. <laughs> it could be fun. So, uh, yeah, this week's story was suggested by Danielle Lorenz. So shout out, Danielle. Took me a while to find the DM, but um, it was her. And if anyone else suggested it, I'm sorry, I couldn't find it. That's all right. There's too many. Yeah. So this is a diving story. A diving story. So I don't know, probably not one of your favorites, but... Let's get wet. Yeah, (laughs) it's going to be wet and cold uh, because Chris Lemons is our survivor and he was a saturation diver for an oil rig company in September of 2012 and was living with his fiancée, Morag, near Maleg in Scotland. Morag. Yeah. Wow. That's Great a, name. That is a cool name. Yeah. So uh, they were building a new house together and were going to get married in April of the next year. Ah, uh, young love. Yes. Um, so Chris was on the diving support vessel called the Topaz. And there was a 127 person crew, including 12 saturation divers. He was saturation diver number two. So Chris and Morag would uh, send videos back and forth to each other while he was on the ship while they were apart because he had to be on the ship for about a month. So they, they left each other. They left each other <laughs> probably longer than a month because he'd have to come back up. So yeah, a long time to be apart and they're going to get married. But I would assume that they were used to this because this is his job. Right. So Morag had started a new job as the head teacher of the primary school in their town. And the videos back and forth uh, mostly consisted of Morag showing Chris their animals on the farm and Chris showing Morag his crew in the ship where he would be staying for the next month. That's so wholesome. Very wholesome back and forth. And the ship that he was on, the Topaz, is built around a bunch of pressurized saturation systems made up of living chambers that are on board for the divers to live in so that they could get used to the pressure that they would be experiencing while they're diving. Right. So so we talked about saturation divers in the story with the the cave with the kids, the the soccer team, or the... Which one? Because I know we talked about saturation divers. I think it was the one where... uh, it was off the coast of Africa, and he got stuck down there in the ship. Or no. Harrison Ojegba Okene. Yeah, I think it, that was him. Okay. Because the Thai cave divers didn't have time to, like, pressurize. They right. just went in. Okay, um, that's I'm getting off topic, but the point was saturation diving is what? Just, like, deep sea diving? Yeah, so it's, like, really far down. So their dive on this one is going to be 100 meters or about 300 feet down. Shit. So three football fields straight down. Oh, no. 
put it into perspective. Yeah. Oh, geez, it's real now. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a lot of pressure. It's 10 yeah. times what you would experience at sea level. Oh, shit. So they have to like gradually get up to this and then, you know, become like used to it. Right. Otherwise, no good. Otherwise, they die? Otherwise, not great. Yeah. So they're going to be living in these pressurized um, systems for about a month. And then once they're ready to go down, they're going to take what they call a bell, which is a pressurized pod that goes down to the bottom of the sea. A diving bell, yes. yes. It was Harrison Ojegbo Okene. He okay. had to be in that. There you go. I'm just trying to connect the dots here for myself. Sure thing. So this is where he would be living and he's showing Mirag like, okay, here's where I'm going to be living. Like I, he could barely stand up in the thing and, uh, you know, just introducing his crew members. And so they would spend 28 days locked in these pressurized containers with two other divers that are on their team that'll go down to fix what they're working on. It's the manifold. It's like basically a structure that pumps oil up to the, sur to the surface. It's like being in a spaceship. Correct, and it is really funny that you said that because Chris describes this as going to space just underwater. Yeah, that seems right to me. So that yeah, checks out. Just about. And Chris was paired with two other divers, Dave Uasa and Duncan Alock. Okay. It's probably pronounced like Alock. Sure. I don't know. It's my Midwest coming out, but. <laughs> Chris had been diving with Duncan five times before, and Duncan was actually on Chris's first dive. So they had bonded uh, pretty strongly together and knew each other really well because they had spent, you know, five other, I don't know, sessions. They're not always 28 days, but they're usually weeks on end just with him and then, you know, going down in a very dangerous environment to go get something done. Yeah, so, it would suck if you didn't like that person you're yeah, with. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. That's exactly what I was going to get to. Yeah. So it's really good that they uh, enjoyed working uh, with each other. And Chris really kind of considered Duncan a father figure because he was a little older than him and was present on his first dive and probably taught him a lot of things to know and learn the ropes. So in Dave's words, you obviously don't want to get paired with a knob. A knob? Yeah, <laughs> since these were the only people you would see for about a month and you're living in really close quarters because they don't want to pressurize more space than they have to, and I'm sure it's, like, really expensive. Of course. Chris was comparatively new to saturation diving, having, you know, only dove five times with Duncan, and he had changed his career to diving uh, later in his life. So Duncan vouched for Chris to Dave, and they were all happy to join up and get going. So the job that they're embarking on, like I said, was 10 times the pressure of sea level, which is why they had to spend so much time in these pressurized living quarters. And what they do is they pump like this helium and oxygen mixture into the living quarters. And basically their voices are high this entire month. I was actually just going to say, what are they talking about? Like chipmunk voices the whole month? Exactly. That's hysterical. <laughs> I know. They said that the first 30 seconds is always like really funny. Yeah. And then it wears off. Right. Because you get I, used to it. Yeah. But when I was watching, I'm like, I don't think I would ever get used to it. It would <laughs> yeah. be hilarious to me. But yeah, I'm sure if it's your job, you know, you aren't a child like me and <laughs> right. you get used to it. Yeah. So I think what happens with this is like they want helium and oxygen because I think if you just pumped only oxygen in, like the pressure would be so much you wouldn't be able to breathe. It'd be like too much. Mm. So they probably put in like a lighter gas so that you can breathe the same amount of oxygen. This is a guess, but... Um, Science with Alex Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> just a guess. Um, so they're going into the North Sea for this dive. And it's a section of sea about 12 hours out from Aberdeen. 
And if you do hear any motorcycles in the background, it is because there's a literal parade happening outside of our apartment. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you do hear them, they are everywhere today. And we don't know why. And they're like, the wheels are super tiny. And there was, I shit you not, like a hundred people just riding down the street in front of our apartment on tiny motorcycles that were extremely loud. It was kind of fun to watch, but not great for recording. Yeah. I don't know. It seemed to me like it was like 500 people. There's a lot of them. Well, it could have been more than 100. I don't know. But it was a lot of people. So if you hear it, that's all. Anyway, back to the story. Back to the story. So that we're 127 miles east of Aberdeen in the middle of the North Sea. And they're just hanging out in the pressurized container waiting to go down to their mission. And it quickly went by because, you know, they're just in there doing pretty much nothing. Just trying to live, you know. And as the time for the mission got closer and closer, the ship had to go to the position where they were going to dive down and fix this structure and went into what they call DP lock, which is dynamic positioning. So this is software that figures out how to keep the boat in one place. And the seas are really rough. The weather at the time was extremely bad, but apparently this is normal for this part of the sea. It's just really rough. So, you know, this system kind of like, I assume, has a bunch of like motors just to keep it in one place. And, you know, it's getting rocked around all the time so that they can stay above where they need to be and that things will not go bad because if they do lose that, they're just going to get dragged along with the ship, which is no bueno. Mm -mm. This software is extremely important. And once they were in the position that they needed to be in, the dive supervisor, Craig, told Chris and his crew to get into the bell and go down. The dive supervisor's job is incredibly important. He's basically like the quarterback of the operation, just tells them exactly what to do, where to be, and any decision about the divers would be deferred to them. So they're like head diver. Like mission control center for space? Yes, they are basically daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy, where do I go? Yeah, and um, Craig was saying that you basically have to tell them every single little detail of what to do, and it's almost like you're putting your hands through the screen and doing it for them. Mm. It's basically once they get down there, they're in a really dangerous like environment, but they aren't really making that many decisions for themselves outside of like getting to the structure. Mm. So th- that was interesting to me. I didn't think that they would have this much involvement with the surface And obviously they're all really excited to go down and get it done because they've been locked in a chamber for 28 days. I can't imagine wanting anything else other than to get out and do something. Can they like shower in there? Yeah, they have a whole shower, bathroom. Um, Because I know it's a small space, so I don't know how much they have, but I guess they must have like enough food to sustain them. And oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll post pictures of it. Yeah, of course. Actually, I would assume that they bring in all the food that they need. There's no like exchange, or maybe there's some way you can kind of like get it in and out. Like you put the food in, pressurize it, they go in, then you depressure it. I don't know. Right, right. But yeah, so they're really excited to go on their six hour long dive that day. And basically it sounded like they were just replacing a pipe. But, you know, 300 feet under the water, it's kind of complicated. They're really excited to go on their six-hour dive 300 feet underneath the water. I'm sorry. I just needed to replay that sentence because that sounds awful. And you know what? It's dark. Oh, no. Down there. Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be dark? Yeah. And to kick it off, it's about four degrees Celsius. And for our Americans, that's 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Cold. So it is almost freezing. Uh, it's a bit nipply. It's a bit nipply. So <laughs> this whole remember this whole time they still have helium voices. So like watching this footage is incredibly funny to me. <laughs> Daddy. 
Please help. <laughs> exactly. So they're tethered to the bell while working on the structure with what they call the umbilical cord. This keeps getting sillier. See? So, like, <laughs> so we're going to introduce this slowly. We're not going to be able to handle it all at once. <laughs> so this is basically, um, the umbilical cord is basically what supplies them with warm water, oxygen, and communication with the surface. So it's literally everything that they need. So I'm sorry, Craig is not daddy. Craig is mommy. <laughs> we need to we need to clarify here. Craig is 100,000% mommy. Yes, basically. <laughs> this um, is getting better by the second. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> The other thing that the umbilical cord provides for them is light and, you know, a way to get back to the bell because, you know, it's really dark, especially if the visibility is low. You can't really see, you know, yeah. more than 10 feet and you have no prayer. Yeah, that's getting so back. dangerous. Yeah, unless you have this uh, cord. So, you know, it's really the only thing that keeps them alive, hence umbilical cord. Since the seabed is so empty and desolate, finding the actual site that you need to go to in order to fix is actually the hardest part of the mission. Oh, and Here that's we go. a motorcycle. But <laughs> yeah, a little any, choppy there. Yeah, a little choppy. They need to fix their motor. Anyway, like I know shit about shit. But uh, <laughs> so, side note, I'm just thinking, I don't know if anyone listening has ever experienced an Oculus before, but it's like the virtual reality helmet that you can put on. And my family recently got one because it was my mom's birthday and she was like, I want to get a virtual reality helmet today. And we were like, uh, okay, okay, sick. So we like jumped in the car and went, ran to Best Buy. But uh, there's this feature where you can like stand on the bottom of the ocean and like look around you and like experience the fish and like the ocean floor. And it's fucking terrifying, for me at least. I mean, I'm sure some people would really like it. It's it's really cool being in a virtual reality-like thing, but I'm just picturing the bottom of the ocean in that virtual reality helmet, and I hated it. <laughs> like, every second I hated it. And I was standing in my living room, so... Yeah. Anyway, this is a unimportant side story, but this is where I'm at in my head. <laughs> Keep Cont going. Continue. Continue. Yes, so, you know, this is what they do. So they're, like, geeked right now to be <laughs> at the bottom of the ocean. So, uh, like I said, it, it's really hard to find the actual site itself. And they say that the seabed can kind of play tricks on you because you can't see and you can't remember like, oh, was that where I was going? Like you get disoriented really quickly. So this is like where the dive supervisor really comes in and helps them find where it is, uh, especially if there's like it's murky. It's uh, really not easy. That night, the weather was not great. Like I mentioned previously, the waves were 18 feet high and 35 knots of wind. It's pretty rough. And this was near the limits to call off the dive, but not bad enough to do so. So bad conditions, but not bad enough to call it off. Mm -hmm. Your face just screams calm and collected. <laughs> yeah, I'm really trying not to interrupt you every five seconds, but that sounds awful. Yeah, but this was described as standard weather for that time of the year. So I think this is just a really rough patch of sea, period, and they still got to finish the job. Period. So, <laughs> period. <laughs> Morag knew that the job was dangerous, but Chris had reassured her continually that he would be safe on the trip, and she never thought of asking him to change careers because of the danger, because he loved doing it so much. So, meanwhile, on the ship, while they are descending to go do the job, Mikhail Chikorsky is in charge of this very important dynamic positioning computer that keeps the ship in one place so that they don't die. Right. Yeah. If he doesn't keep it into the position, they basically become a sailboat and are subject to the weather. 
So, you know, they have backup computers for this, and they have this operator who's, like, constantly watching it to make sure nothing goes wrong. So they got to the manifold and started to go into it and replace the pipe. It's basically like a structure, and then inside the structure are all the pipes that pump oil up that they have to replace. So they're kind of inside this like metal structure while this is happening. And McCall had an alarm that he had never seen before. He said it was an amber alarm. But this is basically kind of getting in between green and red. So something's wrong and we have to fix it, but it's not like code red yet. They're getting really close to like code reds and like everything. That's not great. Just wait. Foreshadowing. <laughs> I mean, we're telling the story, so. <laughs> right, 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 right. Here we go. Strap in. There were multiple faults in the in the computer system that was causing them to lose their position over the divers. And Macal sounded the amber alarm to Craig, and he Craig knew it was really serious because of the urgency in Macal's voice. Craig told Chris and the divers to drop everything and get back to the bell as quickly as possible right now. And the DP system then turned to a red light, meaning that they had completely lost any control over their position and had become a sailboat in the middle of the ocean. Oh no! With 18 foot waves and 35 knots of wind. Oh no! Craig had never seen a red light in his entire career and he was surprised at how quickly the ship picked up speed and moved off of the diver's position. It was almost immediate. The two backup computers, so the first one, the first computer failed, obviously, or we wouldn't be here, but the two backup computers also failed. So they had no control over what was going to happen on the bottom or the boat at this point. And the bell's connected to the ship, and the divers are connected to the bell, but I mean, if the ship moves, they get dragged with it. Because of that, everything's attached. It wasn't a complete disaster yet. And the divers quickly tried to get out of the structure and up to the top of the platform and ultimately pull themselves inside the bell. So I'm sorry, if the if the divers don't get back into the bell, then they're pulled along with the ship above them 300 feet up by the umbilical cord, just like through the ocean, free floating? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yep. So this is, this is the direction we're heading in. Oh, no. Yeah. So Chris and Dave scurry out of the platform that they're fixing and Dave expected the bell to be where they had left it because right. that makes sense. Because that makes sense. But he noticed that it was not right in front of him. It was very far behind him because of the way his umbilical cord was leaning. And when Dave got to the top of the platform, he noticed that Chris wasn't moving and immediately knew something was wrong. What had happened was that Chris's umbilical cord had snagged on the structure they were trying to fix and he was stuck, unable to move or get any slack since the bell was moving with the ship and pulling them with it. So Chris kept asking for slack on the cord and Craig had never seen it so taut before because it was moving with the ship. Oh God. At this point, Craig said he didn't see a scenario where Chris was gonna get out of this. Huh. He pretty much knew immediately. The ship was 120 meters long and 20 meters wide and was at the mercy of the weather right now. And with Chris stuck at the bottom, he was basically an anchor for a ship that weighs tons. So no matter how hard he pulled, he wasn't going to win this tug of war. Right. No, of course. And he's about to what? Like, it's either going to break the umbilical cord or he's going to get like fucking smushed up against something and die. Yep. <laughs> That's horrifying. Yeah. He's pretty much the ship's anchor at this point. And the umbilical went so tight that Duncan saw it start to pull the stainless steel base that was holding it to the bell out. And Duncan said that he was shitting himself. Yeah. So... 
Right now, Dave and Chris are diving, and Duncan is in the bell making sure everything with the umbilical cords are okay, and it's starting to pull out. The only thing that Duncan could do at this point was get out of the way so it didn't pull him with it. Oh my god, that's horrifying. Meanwhile, at the bottom, Dave is trying to go back to help Chris and got to a point where they were close enough to see each other's faces, but Dave was at the end of his umbilical and couldn't get any closer to help Chris. And basically, it was just had to sit there and watch. And Chris's umbilical kept getting thinner and thinner, and you could hear it creaking from all the tension. Oh because remember, it's made of steel, uh. at least part of it. And that's when it snapped strand by strand as Dave watched helplessly, and the ship lost all communications with Chris. Oh my god, so Chris is detached. Detached. From everything, 300 feet below the surface. No bell, no nothing. Yep. Except for his, what, like his oxygen? Yeah, so he has two emergency canisters of oxygen uh-huh. that are supposed to last about six minutes. Ah. And they're designed only ever to help you get from the platform back up to the bell. Right. But it's not designed to keep you alive for any extended period of time. Holy shit. Well, I'm, I mean, this is a terrible scenario. I'm glad he didn't get smushed, I guess. Yeah, so that is probably one of the good things about this is that it didn't, like, pull him through the yeah. platform. But not great. No. So Far from great. Yes, I'd far say. from great. <laughs> One might say this is crazy. (laughs) Um, So Chris heard the loud bang and then everything went eerily quiet and he sunk to the bottom of the ocean. So he knew that getting to the top of the platform would be his best bet at getting rescued and he switched to his emergency oxygen uh, as soon as he could. Dave turned around and started climbing back to the bell because there was nothing else that he could do. But there was a lot of resistance because he was basically just like pulling himself by the umbilical cord back to the bell. And he's, you know, they're being dragged along the sea. So it's like really hard for him to do so. So Duncan pulled in the tattered strand for hot water, which was part of Chris's umbilical cord. And he actually got like a really intense burst of hope because he could pull Chris's umbilical Like, again, that was, like, slack for him to pull in. But deep down, he knew that Chris wouldn't be on the other end of the line. Yikes. And, you know, he pulled it in one by one, one for hot water, one for the air delivery line, and it was, like, hissing as he pulled it in. And he went to turn off the air supply to this pipe. And this is really when it set in for him what had just happened, because if you turn off a diver's air in the water, it's pretty much like killing him. Yeah. This is when it really hit Duncan what just happened. Oh, my God. I... Wow, that's horrifying. Yeah, so he turned the knob off and really felt like he was letting Chris down and yelled out to Craig that he had lost his diver. Meanwhile, Chris is faced with a morbid dilemma. He could stay on the platform for rescue, uh, which would be the first place the crew would check, or he could try to venture out from the platform to try and find the bell. But he's not attached, and it's really dark. It's kind of a crapshoot, and just by random chance, you would be able to find it if you just walked out so he didn't know what direction it was going to be and it was really a long shot if he did that so he decided to get to the top of the platform and it took him about two to three minutes to do that uh, and used about half of his air just to get to the top of the platform and chris quickly did the math and began to accept his fate because his chances of getting out alive were almost non-existent at this point he became acutely aware of what he was losing He wouldn't be able to go see Morag on his wedding day and get married, and he wouldn't be able to see the house he and Morag had worked so hard to build get finished. Ow. Yeah. That hurts. Meanwhile, there was no time for tears, and Duncan tried to pull himself together to salvage the situation. 
David got into the platform under the bell and paused for a second to process what the fuck had just happened. Chris was not yet dead, but since there's saturation diving at such deep depths, you can't just swim up to the surface. Right. The only safe place for him to go right now is the bell because it's pressurized and it's being pulled away from him at a rapid pace. Because, you know, if you swim up to the surface, basically, I think you get the bends. You get the bends. Yeah, so... Nitrogen bubbles in your blood, I think, like, go to your heart or something, and you you die. Like, it just yeah, it so kills you. Also, not good. Yeah. So, like we said, Chris has two emergency bailout bottles for air that last about five to six minutes. And he's already used one of them to get to the top of the platform. And the five minutes pass. And the crew on the ship is scrambling to find a way to get the dynamic position software back online and try to get Chris out of this really bleak situation. One of the divers on another team, Stu Anderson, uh, was a diver medic and they woke him out of his sleep and Craig told him that we've got a problem. And he kind of snapped back like, well, is that a me problem or a you problem? And Craig told him that we've left a diver on the manifold and Stu shut up immediately. Yeah, it's an everybody problem. (laughs) Yes. So he's getting ready to basically revive Chris and they told him to get ready to go down. There's always several diver medics on every saturation dive in case anything goes wrong. And they were just going to call up another one just in case, which was really out of routine for Stu because remember, they're supposed to stay in their chambers and then go down separately. So he knew that this wasn't going to end well. And the ship is still out of control, drifting away, and the computer system is still down with the main and two backup not functioning at all. They switch to the manual control system, which you're only supposed to really use like once you're in harbor and the water's really calm, mm-hmm. not in these conditions whatsoever. So the problem with this is there's four manual thrusters, two on each side of a dashboard, so you can't have one person controlling it at the same time. You have to have two people and coordinate. So number one, nobody's ever done this before. And number two, you have to kind of communicate with somebody else to have a prayer at getting where you need to be. So the captain and the chief officer, <laughs> the captain and the chief officer grabbed the thrusters and got to work trying to figure out how to get back to Chris. And they actually managed to right the ship in the right direction, but the massive waves kept throwing them off course, and they couldn't. They kept like kind of meandering back to Chris. So they would like go left and then get turned, you know, 180 to, or like they would get turned parallel to Chris and then they would get it right back and then they would get turned off. They were trying to get back to him and the engines were really doing overtime, but this was just not what the system was built for. Dave and Duncan could feel the rough ride all the way down in the bell because they're just being shaken left and right erratically, the waves. Duncan knew Chris well and was not taking this in stride. He knew his wife, Morag, and couldn't help but think about the conversation he would have to have with her if they lost Chris. And he didn't know how he was going to explain it to her, and he just wasn't going to accept that he was going to have to have that conversation with her. Right. How could you even begin to imagine losing a friend like that? I mean, you spend so much time with them. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's been five minutes since Chris disconnected from the bell, and the hope that he would be rescued is rapidly decaying. The dive supervisor, Craig, could work out that Chris was out of air, but he had to believe that he was still recoverable and alive and forged on. They had another plan to kind of see where Chris was just so they could, you know, know that he was still on the platform or find where to go in order to rescue him. Right. You got to focus on a rescue, not a recovery. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a kind of like 
they call it the ROV, which I assume like stands for remotely operated vehicle, but it's basically like this little pod that has like a camera on it and a light and they can kind of use it remotely to go look for shit. I'm assuming this is also how they find the platform in the first place. So the ROV was the only computer system that was still functioning. They took this small pod and they remote controlled it to try and go find Chris. And it could easily operate 150 to 200 meters away from the ship. So they're kind of using it as like a beacon to go find Chris. At the bottom of the ocean, it's a lot calmer. So they just can kind of go in a straight line towards the manifold and find Chris. And they didn't know exactly where he was, but I mean, they're going to check the platform first. And the low visibility didn't help him either. Everyone on the crew was staring intently at that black and white screen, trying to make out anything that might resemble a human body. And an intense silence gripped the crew as they saw, slowly but surely, Chris's figure come into view. And they could make out that he was laying on top of the platform, and they started to feel a cautious optimism as Chris started waving back at them. Before, everyone was pretty sure that they would be recovering Chris's body, and McCall, the DP operator, was even more sure that this was going to be a body recovery, but even he got to have some hope after they saw this. Right, but they're, they only see him through a camera. This isn't like, they don't have oxygen for him attached to this camera, right? True, but it's been, uh, at this point, it's been about 22 minutes since he's been severed, and the fact that he can still wave gave them a lot of hope. But I thought you said he only had six minutes per each emergency oxygen tank, so that's only like 12 minutes. How'd he last 22? Nobody really knows. Whoa. But there he was. That's insane. Waving. Holy shit. And and that's not even when he's rescued. So like, how does he last longer than that? That's deep. Great question. What the hell? Great question. Oh, baby. So he was still twitching, but alive. Oh, God. Mommy, bring us home. Yes. Mommy's going to work. So the ship was still too far away from Chris to attempt a rescue, and they kept trying to make progress with the manual controls and watching as Chris slowly began to stop twitching and eventually became limp on the platform. At this point, they began to think again that this was it for Chris, assuming that it would all be over and that the goal now was to recover his body. And Dave said that he didn't feel particularly bad for Chris since he didn't know him that well and the job is dangerous. And I wanted what to kind hell? of take make a side note about this because Dave seems like not that much of an emotional person and his nickname is The Vulcan. But we'll see, like, he uh, he makes, like, other comments. Like, I feel like there's, at his core, there's some feelings he just doesn't want to show. Okay. But, I mean, I go back and forth with him because he's, he's just a, he's a, weird, he's a strange character. Interesting. That's, um, that's a fucked up thing to say, Dave. Even yeah. if you don't know him that well. Yeah, I mean. That's no emotion right there. Yeah, just, what just the wait. Hell? Now they're great friends, but. Okay, good, because <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I got beef with Dave for saying that a little yeah. bit. So Duncan said that he never lowered himself to thinking that they weren't going to come back with Chris. Okay. We love optimism. Yes. And McCall was trying everything to get the DP system back online, brainstorming and trying everything he could think of without any luck before using his last resort of cold restarting the system, which takes a long time. Did you unplug it and plug it back in? Basically. (laughs) I feel like a lot of computer problems just come down to this, but you know, he basically like hit the home and the power button. He's restarting that bitch. Shit. They didn't have a like step-by-step playbook for like, what do you do if the computer system fails? Which seems to me like, you know, maybe you should have had that. But like I mentioned before, Craig had never even seen a red light in his entire career. And I bet that they just assumed that the two backup computers would always be there for right. them. 
in case of you know something going wrong. So they waited a tense few minutes for the system to reboot. <laughs> to reboot. So they waited a tense few minutes for the system to reboot, and it started to whir to life again. They finally got it back to work, back to green. So instead of using the manual controls to meander back to Chris, they could go make a beeline to him in a straight line because of this system. Everyone was incredibly relieved, but the hope that they had once had was completely gone. At this point that they had recovered the computer systems was 28 minutes since Chris's umbilical cord had been snapped. No! Dave was really keen to go back out for Chris and was incessantly asking to jump off the platform to go get him. And I feel like... Yeah. So Mm. like, Dave... See see what I mean? Like his his words don't match what he's doing. So Dave cares. I think Dave obviously cares. Yeah. And so Craig and Duncan were holding him back because if he goes out too early, he's going to have to like go a longer distance and won't end up saving time. So it's really like counterintuitive because he has to wait until he gets there to go jump off and get Chris. But, you know, he wants to go. This is not the right thought, but I'm picturing them holding Dave back and he's like, hold me back, dog. Hold me back. (laughs) But I know this is a very highly emotional, intense situation. So (laughs) no jokes. No No jokes. jokes. No fun. Serious only. No fun. So mommy's holding him back (laughs) and they counted down the number of meters until Dave could fling himself off the platform and run for Chris. And they hit the location and Dave sprung into action, retrieving a completely unresponsive Chris. And it was a slog to get back to the bell once Dave grabbed onto Chris because he was dead weight. Right. And in this moment, Dave said that he didn't even consider that Chris was human, just a thing that he needed that he needed to take from one place to another. Dave, again, with this weird... Yeah, I know. I think, you know, I think with this intense of a job and how dangerous that it is, you just kind of have to emotionally detach yourself yeah. to, like, just get it done and focus. Right, you have and to remove yourself. It, yeah, I know. It probably honestly helped him because now he's not thinking about his wife. I'm sure. And not wasting time. Exactly. And just getting Chris the fuck out of there. Yeah, now for sure. So... You know, I I get that it's like cold, but, you know, it's kind of what you need in this situation. So by the time Dave got back to the platform on the bell, it had been over 36 minutes since the umbilical cord had been severed. So insanity. Yeah. Basically, he's had a half an hour past the limit of his emergency oxygen. This is reminding me not to recall every episode we've ever recorded, but this is reminding me of like what episode two or three when we talked about the the woman who yep, was underneath I'm, the ice yep, for skiing yep i'm Am about I, to bring that up right yep, yep, yep. love that we're on the same ba- page babe, dog we're on the same page <laughs> um i think basically the same thing happened oh, so yeah it had been over a half an hour without air like technically or you know what should have been and duncan pulled him back into the bell ripped off his helmet and started to do cpr giving him the deepest breaths that he can And Chris was incredibly cold. Because it was cold. (laughs) Yeah, because he was been in cold water. Right. And a tense few moments passed, and he's, like, breathing into him, like, really just giving it all he can to revive Chris. And Chris actually started breathing again. Oh, hell yeah, Chris. Duncan and the crew were dumbfounded because they they just had pretty much lost all hope for about, you know, at least 10 minutes. Chris was incredibly out of it at first, but got stronger with every breath and, you know, appeared to become normal after a few minutes. Duncan was the first face that he saw, and he was really comforted because Duncan was the first person he dove with and, you know, had become kind of a father figure and one of his really good friends. And now a single tear rolls down my face. (laughs) Dave came up to the bell and was utterly confused that Chris was still alive. He was like, what? He's like, Like, wait, dude, dude, huh? You're alive? (laughs) And Craig asked if Chris was all right, and Chris was like, yeah. Yeah, dude, I'm cool. Yeah. 
I'm all right. All right. Cause, yeah, I'm chilling, yeah, no, mate. That was not wrong accent, but no, you know, yeah, whatever. you get the idea. Wait, were they from Scotland? Scotland. We, that. I, know, yeah. I went Australian. That's all right. Can you do it? Give me a yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, that you can't say. It's just a one syllable word. Yeah. All right, whatever. So, I mean, basically, he's back to normal. Like, everyone's just, like, incredibly relieved, obviously, but also just completely blown away. Yeah. You know, they weren't only relieved for Chris. I mean, they were obviously, but they were also relieved for themselves because they didn't have to go through the traumatic experience of having a diving fatality and, like, having to recover his body and then go tell his family. And everyone was just really, you know, relieved for Chris and themselves. So they pulled the bell back up to the surface and Chris was safe as last. <laughs> Chris was safe at last. Stu was in charge of taking care of Chris as the medic on the next dive and began taking his vitals and monitoring him to make sure, you know, everything was going all right. And Stu must have really looked shaken because Chris tried to reassure him that he was all right and that it hadn't been all that bad. <laughs> he basically said that the feeling was the same as going to sleep and then everything went dark. And this really hit home for Stu. He hadn't really been that emotional before, but when Chris was basically describing to him what dying felt like and that it was okay and that he had, you know, come to accept it, it really hit home for him uh, and he started crying. Whoa, that's deep. Yeah. And no one is really sure how Chris survived, but the leading theory is that the water was so cold uh, that it allowed him to stay alive on what little oxygen he had left in his organs. Right. Um, and it was very similar to the Anna Bogenholm case uh, where she, I think she went without air for like an hour. Yeah, like damn near an hour. Yeah, and her body temp was like 56 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Or something like that. And, you know, it's it's basically like when your body's cold, it like retains oxygen yeah. uh, better. And since the canisters were a higher concentration of oxygen, they think that it like saturated his bloodstream with oxygen before he passed out. That's incredible. And since he wasn't moving, you know, there wasn't really much work to do. So that is the leading theory. But nobody really knows for sure. Goddamn. Chris had to spend five days in the decompression chamber before he could get out and go back to see Morag. Right. And he decided not to worry her uh, until she could come see him in person and didn't actually tell her until he was out of the chamber. (laughs) What is it with you men (laughs) and doing shit like that? What the fuck? Not this, this has any sort of like severity comparison but there was one occasion where alex didn't tell me that he had gone to the hospital and one of his legs was like purple like he sent me a picture yeah (laughs) he sent like he sent me a picture he was like oh uh just so you know i was uh at the hospital today because one of my legs was purple and i didn't tell you because i didn't want to worry you and i was like what the fuck like (laughs) you good you good yeah so that was fun jesus Um, christ Yeah, that was really unsettling. It was this really, it was a weird thing that just resolved itself. Mm. It's like when I was standing up, my leg would turn purple. Yeah, that just scared me. And I was like, please tell me when you go to the hospital because I would like to know. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I obviously get this logic because I've applied it, but I feel like, you know, he probably thought if I can tell her 
that everything's okay and tell her that you know you won't go through this like whole five day waiting period where you're like freaking out but you know it obviously didn't work out that way because Mariah got the phone call uh, about what Chris had been through and actually didn't pick up at first because she thought it was a prank call but when she did finally answer Chris told her what had happened without telling her that it was him until the end and she pictured him lifeless on the seafloor and couldn't bear the thought of losing him he said he would be home in about two to three days but this wasn't good enough for her and she immediately got into her car and drove to Aberdeen to see him because she couldn't calm down and she until she could actually touch him yeah I get that she reunited with Chris early and got to hug him and like really internalize that he was okay still alive yeah and still alive god damn I can't even imagine like emotions what the hell so they can still get married they can still go finish their house and only three weeks later Chris returned to the seafloor for another dive Chris and the crew didn't waste the opportunity to tell him not to fuck it up this time (laughs) yep Hey, dude, try not to fucking die this time. Or almost die. All in their helium voices. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which was so funny to me. And Chris was not actually really concerned that he had almost died as much as he was concerned that he had possibly messed up the chances of him being able to go on another dive and completing the job. This is where Chris is at. He just really loves diving. Okay. Well, that's He loves it that much. That's like someone who gets attacked by a shark and is like, "I'm a diver." Or no, I'm I'm a <laughs> I'm a surfer though. Like I have to keep surfing. I'm sorry. If a shark bit off part of my body, I'm not stepping foot back in the ocean. Well, you know, some people are like, you know, I only have a limited time on this fucking earth and I really just came face to face with it and I don't want to do anything else except dive. That's so, great for them. I love that. You know that. what? More Take- power to them. Yeah, just grab life and shake it up a little bit. Shake it up. Yeah. But not when you're at the bottom of the ocean. No. A happy ending to the story is that Chris and Morag went on to indeed get married. Good. And finished building their house. And (laughs) Chris never stopped diving and continued to dive on the same boat with the same people and is really close to Dave and Duncan. Okay. And he's living his life. All right. Well, hey, if that's what Chris wants to do and he loves it and he's very passionate about it, obviously, then go off, King. You know what I mean? So, you know, he's just living life and, you know, from all accounts, is happy. Love that for him. How is this not a movie? And I'm just about to cite my source. This is a documentary on Netflix called Last Breath, which is where I got most of my information from, along with a few like articles from like the BBC and uh, other ones. Uh, but it's a really well-produced film, and it tells the story really well. Sure, yeah. I mean, documentary... For sure. I mean, were they doing like live reenactments, or not live, but you know, like reenactments kind of thing? So they used like what footage of the real event that they Uh had, and then they reenacted some parts. Okay, well that's kind of fun, I guess, but I want like a full like motion picture, like I want a a whole ass movie. Alright, so if any of you out there have uh, the money, we are willing to produce a film. Yeah, that'd be pretty sick. Yeah, because podcasting really translates to movies for basically the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So that is the story of Chris Lemons. Chris Lemons! Almost dying at the bottom of the North Sea. Yikes. But yeah, this is crazy. And I don't know, it was like almost the reason he survived was like really similar to Anna, Anna Bogenholm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he, he wasn't as cold as she was, right. but every time I think about that, it's just so crazy to me that you can like literally go without air for 30 minutes and still be alive. And he has no permanent damage. That was another detail I forgot. He is perfectly fine. That's, yeah, he seemed like, like it. Like yeah, you were like, people, oh yeah, he just woke up and he's kicking it. And yeah, I'm like, he's just Sick. kicking it. He's like, dude, it's okay. Like it all just goes black. It's no big deal. 
It's like you're going to sleep. That's it's comforting. It's really calming. That's comforting. Like, Jesus Christ. That's good. Yeah. Goddamn. Human body's amazing. And so is Chris. Hell yeah. And yeah, I don't know. Morag is really wholesome. Like yeah. she's, like if you go and watch the film, like just her personality, she's just very like bubbly and light. And... Yeah. She, you said she was a little, a teacher for like a yeah. what, how, what, what grade? She's uh, the head teacher. So I think for that like she, a preschool or something or the primary school. Primary school. I think that that means like grades one through eight. Sure, sure, sure. So like not know. like little kids, but still kids. That's cute. Yeah, That's so, cute as hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, shout her out. I love that. Well, that was a fun one. That's a nice little breather. No pun intended for um, <laughs> after. Like, just keep breathing takes on a new meaning this episode. <laughs> well, <laughs> that and also the fact that he couldn't breathe. That, that's, you know, no pun intended, really. Um, but from last week's past two weeks episode. So yeah, lo- love that. Had to give you a, a lighter one. Yes, as, of course. I don't know, as light as somebody dying can be. <laughs> right. <laughs> Almost dying. Right. No, but it, um, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. What's your good thing? What's my good thing? Hmm. My good thing was last night I had to work a party, like a really big Halloween party. And I'm a bartender, as I'm, I'm sure you guys know. But it was supposed to be insane. Like there was supposed to be like 700 people coming. I was like mentally preparing for actual war. Like I didn't know what the fuck to expect. And when I went into it, I don't know how this happened, but I was put into a bar that like really didn't have to work very hard. Like, and I don't know how I got away with that. I mean, I didn't do it on purpose. I was fully prepared to help everyone, but I have a little bit of survivor's guilt <laughs> that I like made it out just scot-free. Like, Yeah, basically didn't really do anything. Yeah, I didn't have to do shit, which I was like, whoa, this is, there's a whole party going on out there and I'm standing in here and I'm not really doing anything. But I'm also not mad. But I'm also not that mad. Not mad. I'm not that mad. I had some candy and some cupcakes and some pizza and that was it. <laughs> but yeah, that's my good thing, I guess. I was very grateful that I didn't have to completely break my back and yeah, cause I would have actually have crazy back problems, but that's beside the point. Anyway, what's your good thing? Uh, my good thing is that I'm going home to Michigan next week to tailgate for a football game. Oh, right. I forgot about and that. And I'm excited for it. Oh, I'm jealous. That'll so, be fun. I don't think I've been to a, like a Michigan tailgate in like two years. Yeah. Maybe more. Yeah. It's been a minute. So I'm really excited. Uh, this is like one of my favorite parts of going to Michigan. Well, so. 100%. So yeah, I'm pumped to go back. Hell yeah. Yeah. That's a good story. All right. Well, if you want to look at the pictures for the story that we talked about today, and by we, I mean Alex, then check out our Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you would like to share with us in your own words for a upcoming listeners episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a Twitter that is nottodaypodcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. And we have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.